Conservative lawmakers in dozens of states are trying to block or discourage the teaching of so-called critical race theory in schools, colleges, and universities. Educators across the country have been telling us how overwhelmed they are by this latest form of resistance to talking about race and racism. I feel like I've been running this one race for decades, and I'm cruising along trying to (laughs) keep on running the race, and somebody came over and just knocked me down and said, you're in the CRT lane. You're in the critical race theory lane. And I hadn't even heard the term critical race theory till last January. This is Teaching While White, a podcast to help move the conversation forward on how white educators can be consciously and intentionally anti-racist in the classroom. I'm Jenna Chandler-Ward. And I'm Elizabeth Denevi. Critical race theory, or CRT, is based on decades of scholarship. In simple terms, CRT holds that racial inequalities are not about people of color having some kind of biological deficit or defect, which was the commonly held belief in this country up until the civil rights movement. Rather than blaming people of color for the oppression they experience, CRT says that there is a system of discrimination which has been created and embedded in American institutions. CRT points out patterns and gives us language to be able to name the way that racism operates. That's what white people are so upset about. Here's Nicole Hannah-Jones talking about the reactions to her 1619 project, a long-form journalism project that began in August of 2019 to, quote, reframe the country's history by placing the consequences of slavery and the contributions of Black Americans at the very center of our national narrative, end quote. If you look at the laws that are being passed, the argument isn't that we can't teach this because these are not factually accurate. What they're saying is that if we teach these to kids, our kids might think we are a racist nation. So think about what that is saying, that if we teach the true history of our country, if we teach these facts, then the logical conclusion that our children will come to is that we are a fundamentally racist nation. And so we cannot teach those facts. That is what this opposition is about. And it is not incidental that it comes after, you know, we follow the election of the first Black president, which was deeply unsettling to the idea of power in this country. We follow that up by electing Donald Trump. And then we see in the final year of his presidency, these global protests for Black Lives Matter. And you see rate of support for Black Lives Matter rise above 50% for the first time in the history of that movement. And then you see this intense backlash against 1619 Project, this creation of this fake controversy around critical race theory, and this massive pushback against teaching a more accurate reflection of our history that unsettles this narrative of American exceptionalism and forces us to confront what we were actually built upon, which is that America would be unrecognizable without chattel slavery. That was Nicole Hannah-Jones speaking about the 1619 Project. In the next few episodes, we will be looking at some of this resistance and why it is so important to be talking to our students about race, no matter the place and no matter the grade level. For this interview, I spoke with Nicole Post. She's a white teacher at an elementary school in St. Louis, Missouri. 
She's been teaching fifth grade with a particular focus on writing and social studies. So through a curriculum that I was developing myself, I've pulled in different texts. That was the first step for me is to make sure that I was bringing in different voices through the text and materials that I was using. When we learn in social studies about the American Revolution, I wanted to make sure that there, all of the different perspectives of that time period were being brought in. Um, so, so that's one way that I thought it was important. Um, and also connecting history and the past to the structures and the systems of our present day and helping the students to make connections with that. Um, using Socratic seminars to create a, a dialogue in the classroom um, and using inquiry-based uh, approaches, I found to be the most helpful so that the students could have conversations amongst themselves um, about current events. That was a time each week that we devoted um, about an hour to talk about what was going on and make those connections to what they were learning about historically and develop their own opinions and their own ideas, um, develop critical thinking skills um, and empathy. That was a, a big goal that I had for them. And what was the racial makeup of your class at that time? This particular year, it was much less diverse than in other years. Um, we had, I would say it's about, it was about 95% white students this year. Um, there were two students that identified as Asian and one student that identified as Indian. First of all, did you notice any change in your students when you made the changes in your curriculum? After each current event, they were required to reflect about what they had learned. I, I tried to pose questions that didn't make them feel boxed in and also didn't make them feel like there was a, a right answer or a wrong answer. And that just allowed them to think about what they had been presented with. And if they agreed with it, why? And if they did not, why? Um, and the reflections from beginning of the year to the end of the year were so much more, they became so much more analytical. They became much more compassionate. They were able to say, um, they got out, a lot of them got out of this binary. Um, it's either this or it's this. Um, and they were able to say, I mean, the founding fathers did some important things and um, did some things that were not so great. And um, at the beginning of the year, they really couldn't, they couldn't articulate that. They couldn't understand that both could exist. Um, so that was a, a lot of growth um, that I saw in there, just getting out of that box of it, it's either this way or it's this way. So when you started to do this kind of reflection and connecting history to current events, was there pushback right away or how did that go? It was the first week of school uh, this past year. Um, I brought in um, so our diversity and equity coordinator and our librarian worked together to create a resource list, a resource page for parents and for teachers. And um, Ibram X. Kendi's book, Anti-Racist Baby, a board book, is what I use thinking that would be a safe way to enter the space. And then we'd have a discussion about how do you feel about this, it being a fifth grade classroom, and it that being a book on the list of approved materials that felt like a good way to go into it. And immediately following, um, well, I should back up, that book presents the idea that people are either racist or anti-racist, and there's sort of no in-between. And so that was, a, for a lot of the students, a difficult thought to swallow, a, different, a difficult proposition, because they, didn't, they couldn't figure out where they fit into that. 
And so one particular student, a white, a, a white student, her mother came the next day or the day, a couple of days later, and um, and verbally accosted me. She was really upset. She said that I was that I was indoctrinating her child. That was the first time I had heard that word um, weaponized against me. And then she said that I was using shame and guilt to try and teach a false history, and that that her daughter shouldn't feel guilty about going to a private school. And, and there were a lot of things wrapped up that really had nothing to do with me or the book or, um, frankly, anything that had happened in the classroom. And I really tried to reassure the mother that we were on the, we were on the same page. We had the same goals of critical thinking and empathy and, and perspective taking, but she, I, she was just unable to hear that at that point. And so, and that was a student that, that surprised me. She she really grew through the year in the same ways that I've talked about the other students. She was really able to come to terms with um, some of the parts of our history that are hard to swallow and, and then work. You know, it's the same thing that I learned when I'm doing my personal work about white fragility and white guilt and white shame, that that she worked through that in, a, in an amazing way, in a way that uh, some adults are unable to. This 11-year-old was able to to identify that this this is guilt and 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 get past to the next stage, the next phase of her growth. So that was a that was a great experience to see. Did you talk about guilt with your students and how you know was that something you prefaced or? Yeah, at first I didn't. I thought bringing it in would trigger them to feel guilty or 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 say that they should feel guilty if they didn't feel guilty. But then when after that happened with the parent, and then I noticed in some of the reflections, they were feeling bad about, especially the white students were feeling bad about the not knowing that this had happened. Um, a couple of them said, articulated, well, I have white skin, so you know, what does that mean for me? Then we brought, brought it into the conversation. And in the same way, I'm a parent, and in the same way that I try and parent and have conversations with my own children about being white, I tried to make sure that they understood that that there was a separation between their whiteness and what these white people in history did. And, and really, their white skin was the only thing that they had in common with these people in history if they were choosing you know, to, to lead a life with kindness and empathy and critical thinking and think about their impact on the world. And, and so... We also tried to look for white people that were leading the resi- helping lead the resistance and, and white allyship. That's where that language entered into the space, um, because only when you, I, I have found that I can only move past my shame or my guilt when I find a way to act, something to do. And so we tried to use agency. I tried to use opportunities for the students, and, and sometimes you know it wasn't going out and protesting, but it was more reflection or uh, reading certain books or continuing to engage in the conversation even when they felt guilty. So how did things ultimately progress from there? You had this one incident right at the beginning of the year with the teach- with the parent. So what happened from there? Some of the parents were excited about what we were doing, and some of them continued to push back. And um, and unfortunately, the administration, I think they weren't prepared 
for supporting the teachers, both in terms of providing the professional development we needed. There was a layer of some teachers were ready to do right, really dig in deep. And some teachers, frankly, were still acting uh, overtly racist and making certain comments or traumatizing certain students. And so there was a there was a spectrum um, that they weren't ready to contend with. And then they had made a, the school had made a public pledge after the murder of George Floyd that they had an obligation to dismantle, to work and help to dismantle the systemic um, injustices, specifically um, the systemic racism in our communities, and that they would do so when school started. And so I don't think that they realized that there was going to be backlash on that pledge um, from parents. And they, I think we started the school year with the administration sort of backpedaling and feeling like um, they weren't sure how to proceed. And um, so myself and and the coalition that we had built there at the school, we we felt significantly undersupported. And it was hard and it's hard to do this work when you're feeling unsupported because you feel like, um, you know, the parents have a lot of power in private schools. And so it gets a little bit scary. And and you want to, and there's, I, I question myself a lot of times on whether or not I was, I, I should be bringing some of these conversations into the classroom because not, not a lot of teachers were, and it, and it's sort of a lonely place to be. So, so eventually I, I think it was the insurrection that was the turning point. And that was the moment where we were told by the administration that we should be addressing that in the classroom, but then they weren't telling the parents that was going to be happening. And a lot of parents didn't want it to be addressed in the classroom. Students were coming into my classrooms saying that it was all a conspiracy and it didn't really happen or supporting it because Trump had won the election. And, um, and there was, there was no way not to bring it into the class. It was already in the classroom. So um, we had to talk about it. So when I started talking about it and we started bringing facts in and having more conversations about what was going on, the pushback doubled, tripled. I don't know. It just, it it became almost impossible to do the work because I had, I was spending so much time responding to emails and phone calls and, um, and the administration at that point took a stance of neutrality um, that we were going to go back to our founding principles of diversity res- means respecting all opinions, all sides. And, and so I started questioning that stance because in uh, my value system, racism doesn't have two sides. And I, want, and I was told to stop teaching the current events. And I, and I refused and continued. And so um, it got to a point where um, I w- it was pretty clear that my job was in jeopardy. And um, I had to have some, a tough conversation with my husband about, you know, that how, if that could, would be okay for us. And I, um, I kind of leaned into that white privilege and, and I was able to do that, um, put myself on the line like that. And within a couple of couple of months after the insurrection, I was told by the administration that I, I no longer belong. That was the language that they used. Um, I was not a good fit anymore. And um, my constant questioning of administration uh, about these issues was was too much of a problem. And so so that that's how that ended. <laughs> Thinking back on how you started this unit, the whole the whole thing, would you do anything differently, do you think? I 
I keep thinking, how could I have built more of a, like a critical mass (laughs) so that, because I wasn't the only one that they dismissed. There was um, another individual uh, who was doing the same work um, as I was doing. And, and we were really it in terms of like doing the work every day, but we, we would try, we were trying to build this coalition of other people. And I wonder if I could have supported them more in certain ways, or if I could have, you know, there's now the language is bringing people in instead of calling people out. And I know that I, I probably made people feel uncomfortable and, and perhaps called them out for not doing anything because I was so frustrated. So, and, and a lot of times I was told you're not, you're, you're going too fast. You're just going too fast. This is a private school. You know, it's 114 years old. We can't go that fast. And then I would come home and I'd see the trauma uh, and, and the death on the news and, and people in my community suffering. And I, um, I th- and I'd say, I'm not going fast enough. <laughs> That's Nicole Post. She's a white English teacher in St. Louis. She resigned from her post at her private school over its handling of race and diversity issues, especially in the wake of the murder of George Floyd, a black man in Minneapolis. Jenna's conversation with Nicole will continue in just a moment. Isn't it interesting that the school chose to actually go so far as to create a pledge affirming Black lives after George Floyd's murder, but then totally backtracks when there's some complaints from parents? And also, she says they took a stance of neutrality. You know, I don't believe in neutrality. And when you backtrack, that is definitely a stance. That is not neutral. And why can't we hold the line as white people? What's going on? And the part I find even more frustrating than all of that is how is the level of readiness and eagerness to engage in what is best for kids determined by those who are least impacted by the status quo? Yeah. And why was the administration surprised by the pushback? We see this pattern over and over again, and it makes us ask, what has allowed school leadership to be shocked when there is pushback on efforts to address racism? It's like some kind of magical thinking that makes us believe we really mean it this time, but we've actually done none of the work necessary to really engage white people when they fight our efforts. There is always resistance. Why are we not planning for it? Certainly plan for everything else, right? And holding a different view doesn't mean that you're being marginalized. If you don't agree with a Black Lives Matter statement, that doesn't make you oppressed or even unsafe. You may be uncomfortable to have an alternative view, but this is not about you. It's about affirming those who have been and continue to be impacted by racism. Let's continue now with Jenna's conversation with Nicole Post. Nicole is a white elementary school teacher in St. Louis, and she told Jenna that she kept parents up to date about classroom discussions of race, the weekly updates, or the school's monthly newsletters. I think so much of this work is providing the parents with resources, so I really partnered with our diversity and equity coordinator um, to make sure that any resources I was finding, she was posting for the parents and vice versa, so that they were getting it at least in two different places. Um, and I also, those reflections, the student reflections, when they showed such a depth of thought and of 
of compassion and uh, a willingness to understand and learn. I shared those with the families. And I think sometimes it was scary for them to see that their, you know, children were navigating through this in part because I don't think a lot of adults have had the opportunities to navigate through this and think about what that means for them. And so if students are wanting to have this conversation at school, it doesn't end at school and they're bringing it home and they're hard conversations to have and scary sometimes conversations to have. And so I think sometimes even though my intentions were to celebrate with the parents, it scared them a little bit that they're that their fifth graders were digging into this material and and had such profound questions and wanted to go further and further and deeper and deeper. I was excited by it and I and I supported them in that. Um, but I can see I can see how th- that might have been scary, especially if you're if you weren't in the habit and the practice of having those conversations beforehand. You mentioned you had some parents who were really behind you and really supportive of what you were doing. How do those voices? It seems like in this conversation, those voices are not as loud. And I wonder if you have thoughts about that. Yeah. I mean, the parents that I I knew supported it, I only knew because the students would say, my dad loves that you're talking, that we're talking about this because he, he studied, you know, black history in school or, or a parent might send a quick email that said, I, when in response to one of those reflections, this is I, I don't have the words to express my gratitude that you're providing space for this. And so they so I would tuck those away. Of course, my administration wasn't hearing that right and and it wasn't a, an open conversation for all the parents to hear. And I don't know what how they spoke about that in their private circles amongst themselves because sometimes in my private circles, it's hard for me to, to speak up. And so it's just easier to go with the status quo and talk about non-controversial things. So I was surprised um, that there weren't more parents speaking up, especially after the insurrection and when the school didn't make a stance about that. And, and I, can only, I can only imagine that it was fear, discomfort, it's just so easy to ignore it. I mean, that's the white privilege, right? That's the, uh, that that school has a lot of that. And it's a bubble. Nicole described to me a time when she was reading a book to her own daughter. She was reading Ron's Big Adventure by Rose Blue, which is a story about the Black astronaut Ron McNair. And Ron, um, a, a Black nine-year-old living in uh, Jim Crow heyday um, in the South, wants to check out a library book and all the nice white librarians uh, smile at him as he's trying to check out the book and say, Ron, you know, um, that's against the rules. Um, It's against the law for black children to check out library books. Only white children can do that. And as I'm reading this book to my daughter, (laughs) she at that moment turns to me with utter shock and horror and starts hitting herself um, on her head and and I grabbed her hands instinctively and to stop her from hurting her, her body. And, and I said, what, Bethany, what's going on? And she said, well, I hate being white and I don't want to be white. Um, and shame and guilt. And how old is she? she? She's six years old. And so for my six-year-old daughter to have such a huge emotional response um, to a Black boy not being able to check out a library book... It hit me to the core. 
you know, we spent the next 20, 30 minutes finishing the book and looking for the allies and um, especially the white allies, and then talking through what she would have done because she was holding this guilt and this shame as if she herself had made that choice in that book because she knows she's white. We talk about skin color explicitly and openly in our house color in, in our household. And so she just immediately said, well, then I'm, I'm guilty. I'm, I'm at fault for this. And so I, I talked her through what she would have done in that moment with Ron and what she would have said to the librarians, or if she was a librarian or what other things she could have done. And then we talked through and brought it to the present about what, that this is still happening and, um, and what could she do to be an ally? Because hitting herself and not wanting to be white doesn't help Ron. It doesn't help any people of color. It doesn't help herself. And so how could she show love and support? And and we talked through a lot of different things she's already done. I mean, you know, when she was two, she was on my back at a protest. We got out some of those pictures. So within about a half hour, 40 minutes, she was calm and confident and feeling great. And I and it brought me to a it was just a new lens to see this whole situation with my school. And I had I had was still feeling really resentful and anger and not really sure how to get past that. And so when that happened with Bethany, I saw my administrators and the teachers and those that just refused to do any of the work and blocked me from doing the work and Discipline, I mean, disciplined me and shamed me for doing the work. I just saw them in a whole nother light. I saw their, them as six-year-olds and not able to work through this with their parents or their teachers. Um, and it gave me a sense of compassion and empathy for them that I didn't think was possible. And so I was able to see the complexities and the nuances and and feel compassion that, man, it's hard and it's scary and it takes a lot of courage. And as adults, we a lot of us didn't have these opportunities to work through that shame and guilt. And this was a, a about checking out a library book. Can you imagine for the first time learning about the lynchings or the massacres that have happened in our country? I mean, it, it's almost self-preservation to not uh, engage at that point because you just can't you just can't do it um, because you haven't had that practice. And so that you know that is why I, again, I think it's so important that in the classroom, I'm giving students this opportunity because it would be a disservice. I would, I would feel, uh, I feel a moral obligation to provide them with these opportunities because when they are um, in high school and then in college, and then perhaps parents themselves, certainly community members, and they start to uncover some of these issues in our history as a country and in the world, I don't want them to start hitting themselves uh, upon the head. I, that's not that's not going to be helpful to anyone. Um, so that's a. I, I felt a huge sense of urgency after that had happened, and compassion, and it really has helped me transform into the next the next part of my my journey here. Parents say, "Please don't teach this," or not even please, but don't teach this. My child will feel guilty, and your child felt guilty. So, what do you say to that parent who said who just had that experience with their six year old child? Yeah, I don't think not feeling guilt is the goal um, f- for me as a teacher, as a as a parent, 
that doesn't seem like a realistic goal. Um, everybody feels guilt at some point or another with this, with this work or with anything else. If you hurt someone, you feel guilty, and that shows that you have uh, the capacity for love and for kindness and and for regret. And so I I think guilt is just a sign of goodness in, in someone. And then you recognize it and you, and you think, you know, you can reflect upon why do I feel guilty and, and talk it out with someone. And then you move on to the next emotion and the, and often action, but it's, it will never be my goal as a parent or a teacher to prevent children from feeling guilty. Um, I don't, I don't see the point or purpose in that, but to help them work through it and help them get past it. Absolutely. That that's a, uh, instrumental role that I play. Is there anything else that you want to say that I didn't ask you about? I love that last question. Um, <laughs> I, I would just say to any other educators out there, any other parents out there that are doing this work and have found that they're in that rut of shame or uh, questioning themselves um, because they're pushing back against the status quo against these systems that for centuries have been um, intentionally created. I just want to say that you are in good company, <laughs> that um, that we're all standing on the shoulders of giants, and to encourage you to find communities and um, like-spirited people that are doing this work, because I felt so alone for so long at my school, and and I and I just was convinced, like I'm do I'm all by myself here, and that makes everything spiral out of control um, and less sustainable. And when I was able to find a community where I do belong, and I and I'm not actually speaking about my new school. I think that 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 is true. But there are uh, so I attended the Equity Exchange, um, and there are people out there. There are groups out there that are so invested in this work. And you just need to find them, <laughs> and they're they become like your family, <laughs> and and I think that's so important right now. Um, it's it's a component of self care, and uh, and I think I would I would just encourage anybody doing this work to make sure that you're caring for yourself and you're finding those communities, so you can keep doing the work. That was Nicole Post. She teaches fifth grade at a school in St. Louis, Missouri. want to start by saying white parents ask us all the time what they can do. If you are supportive of teachers teaching about race, make more noise. Don't let the resistors control the narrative. Her students were getting better at holding multiple perspectives. The founding fathers did some good things and they did some problematic things. Nicole is helping those students foster respect for multiple viewpoints and understanding that things are not just good or just bad. Looking around at all of the division in the country right now, isn't that exactly what we need? Parents need to also stand up and say, this is what's best for kids. Right, and we have to recognize how good kids are at understanding complex things. We don't need to dumb it down for them. 
And when we can really ground white kids in their identity and help them see that they have a race, then we can talk about what they can do when they notice racism happening. We're not labeling them as racist. We're helping them to see how they can interrupt a racist system and giving them agency and the opportunity to do something different. And why are we so afraid of feeling guilty? And that there's really this belief that there are good emotions and bad emotions. I think we need to feel all the emotions. You know, it reminds me of that parent who said, how do I prevent my daughter from feeling angry? And I, my answer is you can't. You have to feel angry sometimes, and that's okay. And if her six-year-old can move through her feelings of guilt in about 20 minutes, can't we as adults move through our feelings of guilt or being uncomfortable or whatever it is? Why can't we work through that? And we get that the fear of being fired is real. Yet, as Nicole reflected, we are better together. You are not the only one with those feelings. So connect with other white colleagues and parents. Together, we can make change. And it's much harder to target a group than an individual. Thanks for listening. You can find out more about our work on our website, teachingwildwhite.org. Teaching While White is brought to you by the Eastern Educational Resource Collaborative. Our producer is Stephen Smith. The theme music was written and performed by Henry Needham. I'm Elizabeth Denevi. And I'm Gemma Chandler-Ward. And this is Teaching While White. <laughs>